Welcome to the third wheel. There are neither beginnings nor endings to this godforsaken stretch of chapters where nothing happens. <laughs> but sadly, there has been a beginning, and I pray that there will be an ending. My name is Tyler, and I'm joined by my hosts, Bjorn and... Jossie. Hey. Hey. Um... Hold on. Uh, Jesse, you sound um, kind of different from the last time that you and I spoke. Did you get a new mic? Wait, I told you not to take any gifts from that ghost that lives in the old radio shack. Did you take a gift? He didn't give it to me. I took it, okay? That seems fine to me. Definitely nothing to worry about here. Nothing could go wrong. Hey, are you getting more aggressive by the minute? Yeah, and a little paranoid. Hmm. Mm. Probably shouldn't worry about it. This Get back. is fine. <laughs> no one else can have this mic. Promise me you'll never sell it. It's so precious to you. That's lovely. Hmm. Makes you think of another parallel to another <laughs> fantasy series. Yeah. What kind of series would have a character find some sort of small, shiny object precious and refuse to part with it while slowly becoming twisted by its evil, magical influence? I mean, that sounds mm. very fresh to me. I love original concepts. Like the ones that are all in this book. Actually, we do get a couple more original ones in this section. There is exactly one fresh and original thing in this section that, unfortunately doesn't continue through the rest of the series as far as i can tell but we'll talk about it oh good i would love to hear about it because i really hope you're wrong and i can school you both well we'll see we'll see and to do that we need to start and we'll start on chapter 21 how many chapters are we doing today 10 of them unless you keep interrupting me (laughs) you're not the only host friend that's true (laughs) <laughs> there are, I almost said there's 21 hosts. There's 21 chapters up to this point. And this is chapter 21, Listen to the Wind. As soon as we start, we can tell that it is a different point of view from Rand and that we are finally in the head of a good character. It was so refreshing. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Oh my god, it was great. I also was wondering as I was reading, I wonder if these little chapter image things have significance. And then I looked back at things and then I realized that it was different characters had different ones and I they, liked it. They have incredible levels of significance as time goes on. I'm looking forward to it because I was kind of ignoring them. I was like, yep, that's that's a staff or that's a face. But then, then I was like, oh, it's significant. So I'm going to keep looking out for them as it continues. Yeah, like indicates perspective and sub-themes sometimes. Yeah, sometimes like there are things that don't or that like seem to make sense. Jesse, you'll get this because I don't know how far you are in Shadow Rising. Don't speak spoilers. Um, But like Matt chapters sometimes start off with the dice, which should make a specific amount of sense to you that isn't the full amount of sense. And like... There's a moment in book two where you turn the page and you see a chapter title and the image made me like start yelling in hype. Uh, I don't know if you had the same reaction, Jesse, but hopefully. I have no idea what you're talking about, so no. Cool. Well, we'll get there. Anyway, Nineveh. She wakes up 
after the flight from Shatter Logoth. She's on the she made it to the other side of the river and she starts to move down in search of other people. Uh, she's moving quietly. Except she, for muttering for herself to herself. Yes. Well, as Nenevis want to do, and the slight sound of hair being pulled out of her scalp. <laughs> I found it amusing how there was the one comment about how she had to hike up her dress because dresses weren't meant for stuff like this. Stealthily trap, tra- whatever, traveling through the forest. Traversal. Traversal. I don't know. Words. Verbiage. But I just think it's interesting in the sense of clothing choices and how it may restrict or change how characters I'm guessing will change the characters will change how they dress a little bit at least continuing through the story as they continue their long journey and develop more she's a fool because her skirts aren't divided for riding yeah oh god (laughs) he said it Uh, ladies outfits aren't practical if you thought hearing about the embroidery on cloaks was interesting. I sure hope you like divided riding skirts. No, it's important, though, because riding side saddle is impractical and leads to more accidents. Like Moraine does on the cover of this book. On <sighs> one of a number of covers on this book. Side saddle is so ridiculous. Sorry, I, I, I definitely took us off on a tangent, but that was honestly... I paid more attention to that than the other mutters during her sneaking through the forest adventure. I was just thinking, yep, you should get some pants. Making her way down the river, she stealthily comes across Moraine and Lan, and she's just kind of hiding, listening to them talk. They're trying to figure out how so many Trollocs got down into the south without anybody noticing. And Moraine is... Yeah. Can they teleport with magic? Who knows? Okay. Uh, I mean, I we knows. <laughs> Some of us knows more than the other one, in fact, specifically. But no, maybe. Okay. Who knows? I don't know. Hey, that's a good speculation to have, though. Look at me, the, the, the new reader, having speculation. Yeah, this is why we keep you around. Thanks. Yeah. Moraine is also talking to Lan about which of the boys she can still sense, because if you remember, she gave the boys some coins, and then Rand and Matt threw away their coins as fast as humanly possible at the first opportunity to pay someone with their own money. Yeah, that was interesting, because when they first had them, they were given the impression to not immediately spend it, and yet... You know what's interesting about that is they weren't like, there's nothing indicating that they have the impression not to spend it. It's, like, all in their own heads. They each individually come to the idea of, like, I'm not going to spend this. Which I only mention because maybe it'll be important later. And then they promptly spend it. They promptly are like, I don't want this coin. Please get rid of it. During this section, Nenave has the thought, quote, filthy Aesidae plots. Which I just thought was really solid and prophetic. I really enjoy how many ways she'll be like filthy Aesidae plots, dirty Aesidae plots, just variations upon that. Yeah, that's what they're known for. Yeah. Gosh darn Aesidae. And their filthy plots. So Moraine at some point during this notices that Nenave is present and is like, you should come out. 
Lan is shaken to his core that someone snuck up on him. And during this initial discussion, Moraine reveals that Nenev can channel. Yeah, dropping some bombs. Yeah, she's not doing it intentionally. She just kind of does it subconsciously, and that's how she can tell the crops and the weather so well. And something about knowing when someone's coming, if she's used her power on them. Yeah. Which is pretty damn cool, actually. Is this tied into the coins, where because Moraine gave the coins, which probably had some sort of magical gloop or whatever, that she can follow it, <laughs> similar to how Nanave with the healing magic gloop can track people, or no? That's a better explanation than I could think of. It's... I would say it's probably the same thing, except Moraine did it on purpose. So okay. it's probably like, In- intentional. More forceful. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it can cover more distance. Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I thought there was like a uh, sort of interesting beat when um, the nave is eavesdropping on Moraine and Lan. Mm-hmm. She hears Moraine say, I will not admit the possibility of them being dead. I cannot. I dare not. And then as soon as Nanave hears Moraine says that, Nanave cuts all of that kind of rhetoric out of her internal monologue because she's not allowed to be like Moraine. No one should ever be like these filthy Aes Sedai. I will only use their power against them. (laughs) Whoops. Spoiler for the end of the chapter. We do get a cool backstory in here about the first time that Nanave unintentionally channeled Mm -hmm. that I thought was like... I thought it was interesting that it's established to be so, like, this is exactly how it happens. That Moraine pretty much was able to just say, like, here's the exact order of events, here's who you did it to, and here's the result. And Nanave is just, like, shaking her head. But then at the end is like, yeah, definitely. Does this mean that every Aes Sedai power holder, etc. will awaken in the same way? Or is it just written so clearly on Nanave's magical essence that that's how it happened? They'll have like the same side effects. I think her knowing about Nanave awakening through healing is just from her knowing Nanave is a wisdom. Okay. Yeah. The There's a little bit more that they'll get into later about like what happens the first time someone channels of their own volition. But but it's not important yet. They explain it when it eventually becomes relevant. I think also it's mentioned how risky it is for Egwene to be going through the thing. And Neve talking about how she did it on her own, so Egwene has to be fine with it anyways. Does that say something about what Egwene will eventually awaken to, or is it just Nanave is trying to avoid all filthy Aes Sedai involvement at all? Uh, can you clarify? Um, isn't it like, or I'm not, maybe maybe I'm like in a later chapter where it, where it's happening, but isn't it where Moraine's like, I need to teach Egwene how to do things, and Nanave is like, I figured out how to get the base amounts of power for myself, so like, why does she need your training? Oh. So, the thing that Moraine is trying to tell Neneve is like, you can channel naturally, therefore you will likely eventually die from it because Mm. you don't know how to control it. And so when it happens, your body just isn't ready and 
it'll kill you. There's like a, what is it, like a 75% chance of dying? Yeah, if you're not awakened in a controlled way. Yeah, and so Egwene is the same. She can channel naturally, and so at some point she will just do it. And so what Moraine is saying is like, hey, you might both be able to channel, but Egwene like specifically wants to learn how, so I have to teach her so that she doesn't die. Oh, I think I kind of got the idea that Neneve is slightly more further along the process. She is. Okay. Yeah, it's just not... But Neneve doesn't know what she's doing. The she, process still leads to death because you're, because she's aimlessly kind of doing it rather than with a direction on how she can do it safely. My impression was that the danger had kind of passed for Neneve at this point. The danger is when you first start. That's what I was kind of thinking. I was, I mean, kind of like Harry Potter accidental magic style where it's, you can't control it. So it just kind of outbursts itself. But once you're past that, whether or not you're doing in- intuitively or being instructed, it's pretty consistent. I realize this is the first chapter and um, I'm going on about it, but I really did like this, the switch in point of view. And so I know Tyler said that these are really boring, but I enjoyed these chapters a lot more than the previous ones. No, like I think the writing, the writing is fine. It's just that like the events that transpire are like setting us <laughs> up to do something later. There's not, like, a lot that actually happens here, with, like, one or two exceptions. The events of these chapters aren't very substantive, so we might as well focus on the enjoyable minutiae, because many of these chapters sort of begin and end in the same story place, which is sort of a no-no, but... Yeah, luckily not in the same geographical place. Like, that's kind of what's, what's moving along. Not the most thrilling. No, but it is good to, I mean, it is good that you have these questions. Yeah, there's like a whole, a whole depth of nuance to like, how early do you start channeling? How powerful are you? What are you good at? Can you channel naturally? Do you need to be taught? There's entire chapters devoted to descriptions of these things. Hopefully you will get your answers. Uh, so how did you feel about Neneve's level of disbelief about her ability to channel? I think she really, really hates the filthy Ace plots, and so is distancing herself as much as possible from it. I think also as a wisdom, she's given a certain amount of authority in how she thinks and addresses her environment around her, so... It's probably a little hint of paradigm shift that she's really not interested in dealing with. So I was kind of like, not surprised, but also disappointed. Does that make sense? Where it's like, oh, Neneve, really? You could do so many cool things, but you're terrified of this potential dark thing, which isn't actually dark. You're just scared of it. That's kind of the vibe I was getting. Yeah, agreed. It's realistic. Yeah, it's it's realistic because like you, you need to have somebody that's like, this is potentially dangerous. I'm not just going to believe everything this magical person told me about this power. I, I think it's interesting how Neneve's so sure that she can use the power against uh, Moraine once she learns the things as well. Yeah. yeah, that is a quick turn. Yeah, like instant plotting. Well, great. That was a whole lot of discussion about a discussion that does not take that long in the book but that's good um immediately after this 
Nene falls for some basic reverse psychology from Moraine. <laughs> Moraine essentially is like, you should probably just go home at this point. It's dangerous. And then Nene essentially says, oh no, I'm coming with you. Uh-uh, I'm not scared. This isn't bad. Yeah, just goes. Also, the, like, hints of hetero-romance shipping between Nanave and Lan continue. It's like, this the slow-build het ship. Hints. Hints. You, all, you can't see it, but I'm doing, like, the biggest air quotes possible. It's, yeah. like, Lan's explicit. eyes widened at one point. That's, like... They're basically already married. Look at this. <laughs> these cute heteros. Also, the, like live action person tyler showed me a picture of that person today the actor for it for lan for for lan very pretty oh my god very strong i'd ride with him to the last battle <laughs> we can go into chapter two, 22 now no oh no nope. i don't think no we, we can. can't okay um yeah so well the last thing to say is that nanave is like yeah it's not too dangerous i'll go with you i'll learn how to use the power i'll be the strongest ace die anyone has ever seen and then I'm going to, I didn't write down her exact thoughts, but it's to the effect of I'll learn how to use the power and then use it against you. That's literally almost her exact words. I had it noted. Whoops. <laughs> I just, I remember everything that Nanave says so well. <laughs> Chapter 22 is called A Path Chosen. Perrin wakes up alone in the woods again on the other side of the river. And slowly starts to remember what happened the night before. Um, he still has his axe, he does not have his horse, he basically has nothing, and he's still soaking wet. He follows the river downstream in hopes of finding somebody. And he comes across Egwene in the woods. Egwene still has Bella. Bella is the main character. Bella is the main character of the series. And Egwene still has some food, which means that they're now best friends. They discuss the possibility of everybody being dead and what they're going to do next. They decide, you know, the best thing to do is probably to walk a straight line to Camelin, and we definitely know where that is, so let's go. Their plan is pretty much we'll get there and then hope it works out. I mean, it's better than just wallowing there. I also appreciate um, how just strong Perrin is because... Crossing the river, where being heavily weighted down by armor and the axe, and then wakes up on the other side of the river without pneumonia, without, <laughs> um, you know, frostbite, without any of the other bad things that come from being soaked to your bones with river water in the nighttime. So, good job, Perrin. He didn't even have an itchy beard to keep him warm. Huh? What? Is this a spoiler? Or a joke. Or uh, both. It can be both. It can be both. So at one point while he's looking for people, they mention something about him having sharp eyes. Mm. And this sort of brings up something that's happening later in these chapters that I still, on like the third time I've read this stuff, don't quite understand how Perrin's transformation happens. Is it just the, the buildup of his animalistic nature that they're like, sharp eyes, animal? I, I guess. I, as I said, I still don't really know. 
But he, I mean, if he's always had sharp eyes, then maybe it's just a thing that happens when you reach a certain age. I feel like, God, at I that wish... age, he was suddenly exposed to a wolf brother. He's reached his werewolf puberty now. He was bitten by a radioactive wolf. Uh, I just, I wish that there was some sort of older, more experienced wolf brother to explain these concepts to him. What a good wish. Cough, cough. We'll get there. So 23, uh, chapter 23, is called Wolf Brother. Um, Perrin and Egwene are setting off on their journey through the woods. They've eaten all the food. And Egwene bullies Perrin into taking the saddle when it's his turn. So establishing that he is big and strong, but also very soft. (laughs) Soft boy. Also... Egwene sort of bullies him in the previous chapter as well. Uh, at one point, Perrin says, I've been thinking. And then Egwene raises her eyebrows at the idea that Perrin has been thinking. Just like, I think it's wow. important. I mean, like, I would do stuff like that, too. I do stuff like that. Like the eyebrows or like think? Well, hopefully I'm thinking, but no, the the eyebrows and the slight bullying. Yeah, I feel like with some of the characters that we just mentioned, slight is maybe not the word I would use. Don't bully my soft boy. No one should bully him. It's just going to help facilitate him through his wolf boy puberty. It's going to be fine. And the horse, whatever. Yeah, he has to ride the horse when it's his turn. Equal time on the horse. They travel for days, and they have no luck finding anything except, like, mushrooms and grass. So they're basically chewing on leaves as they walk. That's a good way to get stomach issues. Perrin continues to have his nightmares about someone, and neither of them see a single sign of anybody. It's like untouched wilderness on their road to a major city it's not even a road yeah i was like it's it's what what road it's a path they're making a road so notably in this little stretch we have the first time robert jordan describes parents acts as a wicked half moon and for (laughs) some reason i thought that was the only way he ever described it but this is the only time he uses those words in this book. I did a control F for it. But huh. for some reason, I feel like he calls it a wicked half moon every other chapter. I, yeah, feel like that is the only descriptor. That just makes me think of a scythe. Like a half moon shape. But... Well, it's a convex instead of concave. Okay. Yeah, it's like one of these and then one. Of, it, there's a visual happening. Like one, yeah, half a circle, half a circle, and then a (laughs) spike in the back. So wicked, so circle, wicked half moon and axe, and it has a spike on the back. They after, I don't even remember how long they say it's been. It's been days that they've been walking, and they find Perrin is the first to smell cooking rabbit in the air. Not like cooking rabbits 
in the air, but like he smells it in the air. The scent. The scent of cooking rabbits, not the physical manifestation of cooking rabbits. That would be a sign that he's been eating too much grass. Yeah. Uh, grass. They, well, I mentioned mushrooms. Um, so he's like, Egwene, wait here. I'm going to go find these spontaneously cooking rabbits. And he comes across the campsite of this dude who is like, has maybe never shaved, um, has never cut his hair. He's like a million years old and he's just covered in like animal hide and has a giant knife. Feral old man. Yeah. And the guy's just got like six rabbits cooking. And he immediately flexes on him. Yeah. Says, you and your friend might as well sit and have a bite. I haven't seen you eat much in the last couple days. What a flex. He's been watching them? Savage. Yeah. For days without them noticing. Yeah. Um, And apparently is capable of catching six rabbits that they didn't know existed. I think wolves might have helped. Hmm. Really makes you thinking. Uh, The man is Elias Makera. He has yellow eyes, which Perrin is like, that's strange, but not strange enough not to eat the rabbit. So Egwene comes over. They're like just shoveling rabbit meat into their mouth. Well, Egwene, or I'm sorry, well, Elias tells them that they would have ended up at the end of the world, never having found anyone. They were walking in a line that like perfectly sent them. They like threaded the needle such that they would never have touched any human civilization. They would have just died in the wilderness. Nice. (laughs) Nothing like the end of the world. Do they think the world is flat here? I don't think... Me? Huh. I don't know about flat, but their concept their conception is pretty small. Yeah. Like, there's uninhabitable regions to the north and the east, and there's, like, a seemingly endless ocean to the south and west. Yeah. All that they know is that nobody goes west, you die there. If you go south, that's where the sea folk live and then there's the aiel waste to the east and past that is wherever silk comes from <laughs> no like seriously they're like silk is made in a place past the aiel waste and only sea folk bring it because they sail a ship farther than the wastes pick it up and then come back so it's like a river channel as opposed to a silk road I know that pun. No, no, I'm not, not, not intentionally with, with the whole channel thing. I was just wondering. No, with the silk thing. Silk road. No, no, that, that's, that's, that's what I meant. Like geographically world building, et cetera. Do they have a silk road thing where it's, I'm this country continent and we trade with this strange place in, in this past the wasteland, which we don't really know about. No, because you don't trade with them. You trade with the sea folk. Sometimes the okay. sea folk just show up from the east with silk. And okay. they say, we got it from over there. Okay. Okay. I I just like knowing these things. Yeah. I the conception think, is just kind of limited. I think later on it's mentioned that, like, the Aesidae know the name of the place past the wastes, but it's not 
relevant. Until it's not significant? No. Okay. Not until they tell you what it is. Okay. So, so some wolves turn up. Yeah. Like, four wolves just walk over, and Perrin is, like, about to be eaten alive because he starts to touch the axe, and the wolves are like, no, don't. That just seems like a really bad idea. Like, why would you reach for your axe when you've already partaken in this person's food? In their succulent rabbit meat? Yeah. And wolves. I don't know. It's just... Well, because there's four wolves. You don't know if they're going to attack you. Yeah, I don't think he quite assumes that the wolves are Elias's friends right off the bat. No, it's just... I, I guess... Maybe my own survival instincts are bad, but if a bunch of predator animals come towards you, why would you make a sudden movement? So you're more of a deer in headlights kind of person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess I am. So the wolves have names. Uh, the only one that matters is Hopper. And I thought they were really weird names because two of them sounded serious and the other one sounded silly. Did they talk about what the wolf names mean in this section? Or was uh, that later? Uh, he says, The words don't matter, and they aren't exactly right either. Her name isn't Dapple. It's something that means the way shadows play on a forest pool at midwinter dawn, with the breeze rippling the surface. So, Elias explains that's all sort of abstract, and that it's not the literal words, it's just sort of his interpretation of the feeling he gets when they try to communicate their name to him mm -hmm. um and i think at this point he also mentions that uh all wolves are like assassin's creed wolves and so they remember like back through <laughs> every generation of wolves wolf magic yeah basically wolf magic so he says, here's how they talk. It's with their minds. They have, oh yeah, I haven't mentioned. Uh, they have a collective wolf memory stretching back to infinity. And he like points at Perrin and is like, you'll, you're next. So the three of them discuss the plans for the future, where they're going to go. I think Elias tries to dissuade them or he's just like, Camelon sucks. There's too many people. But Perrin is like, no, we gotta go to Camelin, and I guess we'll go to Tarvalon, because that's what you want to do. And Elias is like, well, I should take you so that you don't die in the wilderness so again. you idiots don't go in the wrong direction forever. Yeah. I can feed you more of my rabbits. What a nice guy. Yeah. What a wolf what brother. A, what a bro. They're of wolves. Are there wolf sisters? Wolf family? You know, wolf folk? I don't remember but i feel like i had the exact same question when i reread this chapter i think it comes up later that they meet more people like them but i don't i don't remember if any of them are female because i also want to know if, is this sort of that heritable thing where moraine was like we're all the boys born here all that stuff just because does this mean that parents mysterious parentage also could be wolf people <laughs> parentage ha parents parentage genealogy what would they also be wolf speaker people or no. okay it's I mean, it's a magic thing yeah it's one of those capital t talents we were talking about before okay yeah, it's just a thing that you that happens to you i think there's a short story that i haven't read that talks about his parents but 
Like, is he an orphan? Or We're told does... that he's an apprentice, and apprentices traditionally would live with their master because they wouldn't get paid, but they'd get fed and housed in exchange for learning things. Yeah, he, like, treats Master Luhan pretty much like a father figure, but he literally never talks about his actual parents. I think... So, Jesse, you might remember this better than I do. We're going to skip forward to book four for a second. I have not gotten to the part you're talking about, and I know the part you're going to talk about. I Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, when Perrin is preparing to go, um, he has a discussion about the people that he has to see, and I don't remember his parents being on that list. They might just be dead. They might just be dead. I guess I should read that short story. <laughs> so there was a line that, um stuck out to me when Elias was talking uh-huh. uh, when Perrin is asking essentially why is this happening to me with the wolf stuff Elias says old things coming again I'm not the only one there are other things other folk makes Aes Sedai nervous makes them mutter about ancient barriers weakening things are breaking apart they say they're afraid the dark one will get loose is what uh, and this sort of I guess that's just sort of a description of the entire conflict of the series. This is... I'm gonna uh, do some light spoilers for Worm. Um, So skip ahead like 45 seconds if you don't want to hear that. In the same way that like a bunch of Worm is explained as cauldron-manipulated events to make it happen that way so that they could like see what would happen... Like, this is a similar thing. I'm not going to say what it is, but it's a reveal that's like, oh, okay, that makes sense why everything, like, happened in such an improbable order and why, like, you have these three boys and Egwene and Nenev all from the same village all at the same time. Uh, Like, it comes back around. Yeah, that's also another interesting thing. Like... Later in this book, we learn some stuff about, like, the clustering of Rand, Matt, and Perrin, but they don't really explain the clustering of Nanave and Egwene. But Moraine describes both of them as possibly the most powerful Aes Sedai we've seen in centuries, which, like, sort of borks my conception of how powerful they're supposed to be. Uh... And they're both from the same place. And we meet at least two other people later that are the most powerful Aes Sedai we've seen in centuries. So I guess that's part of the old things coming again, is more powerful Aes Sedai. I'm going to go on a minor tangent. In New Spring, they meet... They basically say, like, Moraine and another character that you have already met are, like, two of the most powerful Aes Sedai currently alive. And then... Later on in New Spring, they meet someone that redoes like the scale of power. They're like, okay, well, if this person is alive and this powerful, that means that we're not as strong as we thought we were. And so it's kind of the same thing of like those two and the strongest people in uh, Tarvalon think that they're pretty cool. And then Egwene and Nave are so far above them that it's not like, oh, maybe they're stronger. It's like, 
yes, these people are better than you. I mean, not as people, because Egwene, but at the same time, maybe because Nenave? <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so anyway, coming back to the actual story, that finishes up chapter 23, is the three of them decide to set out and they're going to go to Camelin with the wolves, um, except I think one of them leaves at this point. I think one of them is like, no, there's Trollocs. I'm going to go kill them. Chapter 24 is called Flight Down the Aranel. Okay. So the thing that I talked about before, uh, the thing that excited me and doesn't really continue, is the dream sequence at the beginning of this chapter made me so hyped for dream sequences going forward in the series because of a rule that I thought this sequence was establishing that essentially... Things would happen in a dream world, and the way that you operate inside the dream world is that you need a certain kind of mental fortitude to know that you have dreamlike power without letting it come to the front of your mind that you're in a dream. And the idea that that was the mechanics on which they would be operating in those kind of scenes really excited me. But then, as far as I've read so far, that's never really come up again. Um, I will say I know the information that you have um, about dream sequences, and the dream sequences that we are reading about are the thing that you are currently reading about, and even then there are like, there's an additional facet to that, and then there's a whole extra layer on top of it. So like, I would have to carefully, like, I would have to reread the rest of the series and then go back and read the specific one, but I think this still generally falls in line with how, like, that particular aspect of these dreams works. Maybe. Maybe. I'm, I'm like, 300 pages in to Shadow Rising at this point, and this kind of mechanic hasn't come up again, which is a shame, because I thought this was amazingly cool when I read it the first time. Yeah, I think that this particular mechanic is a, like, later in the series, close to the end of the series type thing. Two questions with dreams. One, so is it possible that that can be, like, lucid dreaming? And then secondly, are they prophetic in nature, or are they just big, spooky, and mind games with the bid bag darkness? Uh, you asked two questions, but I'm going to say yes three times, because... <laughs> <laughs> you think you asked two questions, and I heard three, okay. knowing what I know. Okay. Suffice it to say, dreams are really, really important. Yeah. And so the boys are idiots for not telling Moraine. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah there's Especially, a whole- Especially, you know, waking up with a wound that you received in your dream, and being, yeah. I better not tell anyone about this. Better not tell Moraine. Uh, yeah, there's a whole world- of possibilities to the dreams. Tell me about it, Rianne Rian. <laughs> <laughs> Tell Enriad me about it. Is this related to it. is this related to the eye of the world and the light, or is this... oh you'll understand okay. when you're older. Thanks. Um, anyway, in speaking about the dream 
The only specific note that I have is that Baalzaman seems like a pretty uncool dude. <laughs> what an astute observation. Thanks. What stuck out to you, like, for that? I literally don't remember. Uh, <laughs> the only parts of these dream sequences that I remember is that Baalzaman is quite the guy. He seems like he really hates Rand. Oh, you mean like a dick, not like he's dorky and uncool? Correct. Yeah, not like he's a nerd. <laughs> Do you think the Dark One got swirlies in high school? <laughs> I mean, that's like an origin story, I guess. I wish it was possible to turn the face that Beyond made when I said that into audio. <laughs> It'd just be a series of really displeased sighs. Yeah. Ever increasingly displeased. Increasing, crescendo-like sighs. Lose Theron Tellman as the quarterback. <coughs> oh my god, he is. High school AU! Oh no! No, no, no. <laughs> I'm ending this podcast. <laughs> and our friendship. And to you, Bion, our marriage. I can I have to go die in the woods, please. I can't live in a world that, that has this. fiction almost certainly exists. I haven't seen a high school AU for the fan fictions. Usually it just seems like there's a lot of gay romances. Oh, you've been browsing the fan fictions? Yeah, I haven't read any of them because I figured I'd get spoiled. But um, most of them just seem to be a lot of uh, straight people writing about boys being gay. Um, I just looked up high school AU. You know what? Here, let me control F. Okay. We're free. Oh no, there's 1100 on this page. I can't find them all. I'll look later and make sure that we're safe. And if there's not a high school one, I bet there's a coffee shop one. Are you going to write a high school AU of this? No, I have eight other fan fictions I'm working on. Why would I devote it to this series? Is coffee shop AU a fan fiction trope? Yeah. I've yeah, never heard of that. Um... It's 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 a thing like flirting with the barista and slowing getting slowly getting to know them. Which character is the barista in this? Um well I don't ship any of them because none of them fascinate me. But uh You could do a crack ship like I don't know, Tom and Bella Maria. Bella and one of the wolves. Um it, it really Bella kind of- and survival <laughs> It kind of just depends on what what your dynamic is, how you're assuming the characters react within a relationship, both sexually and romantically. I'm I'm not going to break down how coffee shop I use work because that would take a whole nother analysis about how f- fan fiction works and start a new podcast. Yeah, 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 that's a whole new another podcast. If you subscribe to our Patreon at the, we're not cool enough for a Patreon yet. <laughs> at the not safe for work level. <laughs> oh God. Uh, okay, so getting back to the definitely safe for work adventures of Rand and Matt, um, by the, speaking of not safe for work, uh, Jesse, I think you may have seen the least safe for work scene already in the entire series. The one where Rand is having a dream about two women. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, like, one that might be slightly more, but, like, that's as explicit as it gets. This show, it's a book. This book is definitely PG-13. 
Is it a sexy dream or a guilt dream? It's a sexy It's a guilt sexy dream. guilt dream. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> He's guilty about finding people sexy. Yeah. He's like, why is this 16-year-old so hot? <laughs> so, Rand, Matt, and Tom are on a boat, maybe a ship, called the Sea Spray. They're continuing down the river. Tom is spending his days trying to keep people happy enough to not mutiny because he's like, hey, if people mutiny, they're not going to leave us alive as witnesses. So I'm going to do my best. Rand notices that Matt is spending more and more time alone. He's like brooding in corners. Edgy boy. Yeah. Like, seriously, Matt uh, brooding his parents thing. So step off. Matt even manages to brood about the amazing stories the captain is telling them about the world. Yeah. He's like, the captain says, you don't want to go to this place. It's real dangerous. And Matt mutters under his breath, I'll bet he just doesn't want anyone else going after the treasure. Yeah. Uh. Matt's like a real garbage boy. This My treasure. Yeah. Matt in these chapters sucks. I hope you're ready for it to get worse. I was not excited about this chapter. I was like, when is this chapter done? Do you just not like Rand? I don't. Yeah, I just don't like Rand. Maybe you will. He becomes very complex. But for now, he's just... He's just a simple shepherd from the two rivers. I have zero interest in him. Also, I don't, I don't need angsty Matt boy either. So Nobody does. Nobody needs Matt. And in the future, nobody will have him. So they both are taking lessons from Tom because that's their cover story is, hey, these two boys are my apprentices. So Rand and Matt are taking lessons. Rand is better at the flute and Matt is better with his hands, juggling and maybe making things appear out of his sleeves. They're both doing like tumbling and acrobatic stuff. And at one point on their journey, Rand sees a mysterious metal tower in the distance, and Captain Bale Domon provides us with some exposition. Uh, Jesse, did you cut this out, or do I have to remember it? Uh, let's see. Uh, I, shining steel by the look and feel of it, but no spot of uh, loss. Please, please say it in the appropriate accent. It's, I refuse. It's like a Pirates of the Caribbean. There be stranger things in the world than this, though. I'm not continuing with that. On Tremelking, one of the Sea Folk's Isles, there be a stone hand fifty feet high sticking out of a hill, clutching a crystal sphere as big as this vessel. There be treasure under that hill if there be treasure anywhere. But the island people want no part of digging there, and the Sea Folk care for naught but sailing their ships and searching for the Coramore, their chosen one. It's like eight bits of world building in that. Yeah, and also that's one of the that's like a min viewing level of hey, I'm just gonna drop like a paragraph of foreshadowing on you right now. Of like, of like ominous sounding locations. Yeah, that's one of the things I'm finding it interesting the things that I remember versus what I don't, because like a bunch of the world building and like spoilers, like later on in I think book three, a character named Gaul shows up, and the only thing I remembered was like Hey, it's Gull. And so, like, I don't remember a bunch of events except for the big ones, but everything that he just went through, I'm like, okay, yes, yes, yes. That all is perfectly in line with my memory of how this series works. 
God, I really need to like keep a running document of, hey, here's every time that there's just a bunch of foreshadowing and reference it when it. That'd be really... a lot of highlighting. Oh my God, that'd there... be a lot, a lot of highlighting. We'd already be, I don't know, maybe a full page deep. <laughs> so after this, Rand does some acrobatics real high up. Yeah, he's like on top of the ship and is just like high on life. And Tom climbs up and is like, hey, can you not like die on this ship? And Rand's like, what you talking about? It's like I'm going sicko mode and (laughs) swings down the rope. And when he gets to the bottom, he looks back up and he's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And then he feels a little sick. Yeah. Huh. Weird. Is it because of the dream or because he like suddenly realized he was doing something stupid or because of plot reasons? Uh, Plot reasons. Okay. So where he lands, he's finally in front of Matt during the brooding. And he sees that Matt has this ornate ruby hilted dagger. Uh. And Matt says, it's your fault, yours and parents. The two of you pulled me away from the treasure, and I had it in my hand. Mordith didn't give it to me. I took it, so Moraine's warnings about his gifts don't count. You won't Uh, tell anybody, Rand. They might try to steal it. Poor life decisions with Matt. Matt is just the absolute dumbest person to ever walk the face of the Moraine terrain. (laughs) Yeah, this is like peak stupidity in this series so far. Yeah, I don't think it ever gets much worse than he didn't give it to me, I stole it, therefore it's fine. (laughs) And then Rand is like, this is fine. Yeah, Rand's like, sick, sounds hype, let's not tell anybody. Let's not tell anybody about the dreams, let's not tell anybody about our bad decisions, this is fine. We could probably sell it if we needed to, and Matt's like, I will cut you. It's like, I'll cut you with this knife. We should sell your blood instead. Rand agrees to not tell... Yeah, uh, he says, let's not tell anybody. Tom says, you know, after we get you to Tarvalon, we could just go and, like, you could stick around. You're not that bad. It's not like I like you or anything. Yeah. Tom is the essence of Sundaray. Rand has the thought that he is actually going mad, but I do not remember what triggers it. It's him looking up at the mast and being like, did I really slide down that whole thing? Sounds right. Something about my perception of my surroundings is off. Hmm. Hmm. His perception, huh? Uh, Okay, chapter 25 is called The Traveling People. And oh my god, looking back, I don't know how I took so many notes on such an uneventful chapter. Perrin, Egwene, and Elias are now making their way in an actual straight line to Camelon, and they're accompanied by the wolves. Perrin's ability to sense where the wolves are and uh, hear their thoughts is slowly growing as time goes on. And And they're protecting him in his dreams. Yeah. Every time he dreams, there's a wolf, which is really nice. Uh, wolves wolves are like extra good dogs they're so good and dogs are already pretty good (laughs) so good 
No wonder Perrin is best boy. Yeah, I honestly just like this chapter because there were wolves and dogs. Wow. Twice the amount of canines. Sorry, please continue being serious. <laughs> it's okay. I guess you'll like parent chapters. That'll be useful in a few books. So after a few days, they reach this uh, like stand of trees, and dogs um, burst forth. They're barking and looking very vicious, uh, trying to scare the group away. Perrin is like, dogs, I know what to do. And he starts to like get his sling ready to hit them. And Elias is like, no, it's fine. He just like whistles and the dogs seem, they calm down. They become super nice and hey, Elias, you're the best. You're my friend. Which is interesting because don't whistles usually get dogs' attention rather than calming them in real life. Well, he, do he does like this weird like start high, go low whistle that he like combines with a hand gesture. Yeah. Maybe he just knows the traveling people's signals. Yeah, well, it sounds like he's been there a lot, so they probably taught him. Hmm. hmm. So he tells the young pair in and Egwene that there are tinkers in the trees, and Perrin gets, like, super hyped over their smithing. And Egwene gets super racist. Yeah. She's like, like, super racist. Yeah, she starts talking about the things about tinkers that, quote, Everyone knows, like, that they're massive thieves. Probably because Terran fairy folk are as great thieves as the Tinkers. They, yeah. They no doubt end up stealing each other blind. If there really are Tinkers close by, shouldn't we go on? We don't want Bella stolen, then. Well, we don't have much else, but everyone knows Tinkers will steal anything. Small town vibes real strong with this one. Pretty mm. much. I wonder if there's a group of traveling people that repair things and are known as thieves in the real world that these were based on, and it comes off as kind of weird. <laughs> the Romani people. Hmm, really makes you thinking. Elias leads them into the trees, despite Egwene's protests, and they meet the Tinkers. There They're are, chill as hell. They're super chill. They are dressed in colors that, like, Perrin and Egoine are dying in the background of this entire section because every time they turn to look away from a color, they see another color. They'd just like some simple earth tones, please. But no. Yeah. Too they, vibrant. Yeah, they, like, can't handle it. There's a bunch of formalities when they meet, and it is revealed that... The Tinkers are searching for something called The Song. The. Not just A, but The. Capital T, capital S, The Song. So the group of them sits by the fire of their leader. And the wife comes out and is cooking. And they're talking for a bit. And then the grandson of the leader shows up. His name is Aram? Aram? Um, I probably say. I think I his name is pronounced Chad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think what, about what what vowels we've been doing for the A's because there's like A Sedai. Well, but this is a completely different peoples. Aram, Aram, Aram. Aram sounds better. I, I was thinking Aram. 
Oh, wow. Aram. We all three had completely different takes. Whoops. Let's say Aram. Because that's close to yours. It is? Yeah. Cool. Aram. Aram. Chad. Chad. Uh, Chad tells them about the way of the leaf, <laughs> which is the philosophy that all tinkers follow. It's their ninja way. It's their ninto, their ninja way, and their ninto is pacifism. Just like hardcore. If somebody was trying to kill me, I would ask why, and then I would try to run, and the damage that they receive to their spirit by attacking me is more than I could ever do to them physically. And yeah, it's and Perrin has some real problems with this. Perrin's like, you're dumb. <laughs> I was ready to fight your dogs. I will fight anyone. Yeah. Chad takes Egwene away and Elias and Perrin are left at the fire just being <laughs> like, no, you're bad. This is not how you should live your life. And the leader is like, no, you. And keeps looking at Elias' knife and being like, why are you like this? And then the leader tells them a story about some I.L. <clears throat> I'm sorry, what? Some I.L. 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 Please. Yeah. Do I need to open the pronunciation guide? <laughs> yeah, so they sit down and get told this story. And the tinkers were going through the I.L. waste. And parents are like, Tinkers in the Aiel Waste? And the leader's like, Tinkers in the Aiel Waste. It's just a this thing. This time of year? And this time of year, localized entirely within the threefold land. <laughs> and, and so the Tinkers are like, Yeah, the we found a bunch of dead Aiel and we found one uh, female warrior who had a message about the Eye of the World, some new names for the Dark One, and about how the Dark One plans to blind the Eye, and the Tinkers are like, oh. We're pacifists. Yeah. There is a bit in here we learn about the Maidens of the Spear, which are just like female-only warrior group. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is some good light info dump about the Aiel people. Is the waste because of war or because of a magical weapon or because of a normal weapon or just because there needs to be a wasteland for plot reasons? Um. Well, remember that during the uh, breaking of the world, like mm -hmm. everything changed. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible that there was no waste. And then just like the combination of where mountains went and which ones disappeared made it so that the waste is just like a giant desert. Okay. It's, yeah, it's not like a nuclear wasteland. It's not like no. radioactive bad no. evil. No, no. So I think it's probably just that like the fa combination of factors of like stuff exploding created... So it's just not very hospitable. Yeah. Okay. It's like the opposite of hospitable. Yeah. Imagine, wow. Thanks. Imagine a hospitable land. And then... Take all the good things. Yeah. And then fold that over three times. Yeah. Wow. Oh my god. The power of three continues. We do get something about how the Trollocs call the Aiel Waste the Dying Grounds. 
which is pretty sick. And we also get some information about how sometimes Aiel will just go to the Blight to kill Trollocs for fun. Because they're like, I'm bored of surviving in this uninhabitable wasteland. Well, no, I... um, they say some of the young men go alone into the Blight, thinking that for some reason that they have been called to kill the Dark One. Hmm. 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 I just thought that that was why the uh, group of Aiel was there. That eventually then came back and died to give the message. Was because they were off in the Blight uh, hunting for fun. But also the thing that you said, yes. Sometimes young men just go and... Try and bring the dawn. Yeah. Hmm. Is this related to fake... uh, What's the word that lose there in a super significant dragon? Yes, false dragons. Is, yes, all false dragons. Is this related to that with thinking that they're being called to do the thing? Yeah, it's kind right. of like the Aiel equivalent of being a false dragon. Okay. Yeah. But the Aiel people still believe in the light and the darkness. It's just... Yes. Just edgy desert people who fight mystical beings for fun. I don't know if they necessarily believe in the light in the same way that the Randland people do, but... There's definitely, like, I mean, they call the Dark One, like, Sight, Sight blinder. blinder. Oh, God, it's so good. Yeah, we'll see a lot more of them later. We'll have the chance to talk about it. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Egwene comes back from her time with Chad. Uh, she says she has fun dancing, and she almost breaks for a minute and goes to Perrin and is like, please tell me that Rand, Matt, and everyone else are still alive. And he's like, yeah, definitely. (laughs) And she's like, seems fine to me. I'm going to bed. The reality of the adventure hits. Yeah. Super hard. Yeah. Chapter 26, White Bridge. Rand and Matt, uh, still with Tom on the sea spray, we... Oh, I'm sorry. This is where we establish that Rand is better at the flute and Matt is better with his hands, juggling and making things appear from his sleeves. Rand is like, why is any of this necessary? I mean, it's like necessary to pretend to be learning, but like we don't actually have to learn because once we find Moraine, she's just going to take us wherever we need to go and she apparently has infinite money. And Matt's like, no. She's dead. (laughs) Definitely dead. Yeah. Okay, Sasuke. Um, Is the does the the skills with the hands versus the breathing ability does that factor into their later fighting skills? Like, is Matt gonna do more hand to hand stabby stabby trickery, and I don't know, Rand's gonna breathe fire, or is this just something that is just what they're doing? Uh, it's just what they're doing. Just what they're doing. I don't think Rand ever breathes fire. The dragon isn't like a literal, not a literal fire. No, breathing. you're not like a were dragon. Only the wolf brother. No, Only... no were dragons. He's more werewolf like than you might think. Okay. As soon as Matt says that, Rand just like is staring at him and is like, "No, you're dumb." And Matt's like, "No, you." And so they're just staring at each other until White Bridge comes into view a second later. 
We get some information about Whitebridge, uh, both as a structure and as a town. The town is bigger than Emond's Field and Terran Ferry, and the bridge itself is, like, massive. Uh, like, ships can go underneath it, and they say it looks like it's made of glass, but, like, woven like lace. They say it's a remnant. It might be a remnant from the Age of Legends. Capital letters all around. Yes. And Tom says, We want to pass through Whitebridge so softly that nobody remembers we were here five minutes after we're gone. And then he looks into the camera. Yeah. We're just going to be in and out. This is the last job before retirement. So they get off the ship. Domon is like, hey, thanks for making them not mutiny me if you want to stick around so they will continue to do so. I'll pay you. And Tom's like, pay, huh? Remember that time I made a promise to these boys? Well, they're not paying me, so... And Matt's... Or Rand is like, no, please, Tom, come with us. Tom is convinced. He sticks around. I don't remember what this is referencing, but I write... I wrote... Matt gets unreasonably defensive over literally nothing. He's clutching a stabby stab, right? Probably, but I guess it doesn't actually matter what it's in reference to. It's true, no matter what. He is clutching his precious ruby, encrusted, sharp darkness. Please, it's a ruby-hilted dagger. Phallic stabby stab. Kinda. They head to an inn. It's like this dingy place. And the three engage in a conversation with the innkeeper. Who um, has big NPC energy. Yeah. <laughs> this guy has a lot of dialogue options we have to gray out before we can move on to the next event. Yeah. Uh, B. <laughs> so they are talking with this guy. We learn that the false dragon Loghain has been caught. The hunt of the horn has been called in Ilian, which who knows what that is. Um, and then there's some people asking about these three young farm boys. With a white-haired Kleeman. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, there's a mysterious figure uh, like a beggar in rags. He's super suspicious, and everybody's like, that guy's probably evil. And then a man in a ba uh, black cloak that freezes your bones when you look at him. I'm sure he's a really nice guy. Yeah. Not tainted by darkness at all. Seems like there's a lot of stuff going down in Whitebridge. So they finally finish up all of the dialogue trees with this NPC, and <laughs> they leave the inn. Tom is like, we need to get out unseen, which means nobody can know I'm a Gleeman. Let me conveniently bundle up all of my instruments and then hand them to Rand. And they start to head out of the gate towards Camelon. On their way out, there's just a Merdral hanging out and everybody freezes except Tom, who... Are we going to skip Tom talking about his backstory? Uh, oh, with his nephew? Yeah. Uh, no, please. Yeah, go for it, because I just kind of ignored it, so go. Oh, really? It's relevant. It is relevant? It's relevant to you reading. I didn't note it as being relevant to, like, the overarching plot. 
I, I have these things, or if I don't like a character, I stop caring about them at all. Okay, you shouldn't do that, because there's a lot of story to these characters. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, for me, when I first read it, it felt kind of bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, it just didn't feel like good writing to me, reading his backstory as he was, like, relating it to Rand and Matt. But then I liked it better when Matt floats the idea that it's all bullshit. Oh, that it's just like... A Gleeman's tale? But I don't think that's the case. No, I think we have point of view of Tom later where he confirms it. Yeah. But uh, I liked it for the one second. Oh, that wait. I could pretend that there was nuance. It's just basically like, beware Aesodai, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, he... Yeah, his nephew could channel and Ace Sedai Red Aja him. Yeah. Red Aja showed up and were like, this guy can channel, and then they gentled him and then were like, we're just gonna leave. And they just left with him having been revealed as being able to channel, and all of the people were like, We should probably kill this guy. And then they did. Oof. Yeah, that's an oof. Back at the relevant plot, uh, Tom charges the Merdral and tells the boys to run. They finally do. The only things that they have are, like, the clothes on their backs, a little bit of money, and Tom's belongings. And Tom, uh, the last thing that they see- definitely dead. Yeah, the last thing that they see is Tom, like, fighting this Merdral- in the town square. Is he, like, actually dead? Or heroic sacrifice, I'll revive myself. I'm shrugging. Mm. Also, like, the thing about not making notice. Don't don't notice us. Um, I think they'll notice a big ol' fight. Because in, in Whitebridge, do they acknowledge that murderers are real? Or are they still kind of imaginary like Trollocs were in other parts of the world? They're probably still imaginary. I mean, like, I think in the next chapter, we see Moraine walking through the city in the aftermath, and we get sort of the idea. No, we have to get through a tinker chapter first. They're frolicking in the forest, basically. Chapter 27, Shelter from the Storm. There's a very long section here about life with the tinkers. Uh, The short version is Perrin doesn't like it for a variety of reasons, but Elias is like, we're just chilling like villains and Egwene is like I'm hanging out with Chad I'm uh, learning my sensual side yes uh, Perrin gets flirted with aggressively and he continues to grow in his wolf brother abilities so there are two things in a row where Jordan establishes some beats he'll hit over and over and over again in every book The first one is talking about how songs are called different things in different places. Mm. Uh, He'll spend pages talking about it every time they're in a place. Because they're basically oral histories, right? Pretty much. So he'll talk about that. And the also thing that comes up over and over again is Perrin thinking something like, What would Rand do? He knows about girls. My Chad bro. They all think the other ones are more chad than them and it's fantastic does anyone ever think that matt's a chad though oh yeah okay oh yeah (laughs) yeah 
Matt, like, Matt is like, he's the only one that wishes he was actively a Chad without the context of the other two, but they mm-hmm. all still think that Matt is more of a Chad. Okay. I mean, in book four, they talk about Matt just like having casual sex with random people. Yeah. In the events of the book, so. Yeah. That one's the slut of the trio. We found him. Yeah, basically. So Perrin has another dream where the eye of the world is mentioned. And when he wakes up, Elias is like, time to go. They do, and uh, it's like a very extended goodbye. But as they leave, Egwene talks to the wife of the leader for a minute. And then she comes back and she says something like uh, she was coaching me on how to be a woman. And Perrin says, well, men don't teach each other how to be men. We just are. And Egwene says, maybe that's why or that's probably why you do such a bad job of it. Which, like, I just thought was pretty savage. That's like a whole can of worms. Yeah. Yeah, Egwene has a few lines throughout the series that are just like, wow, I sure wish you knew the healing weave so you could take care of that burn. Yeah, I don't hate Egwene, so there's that. Wow. Well, it's good. You have such opposite opinions from us. We can have a nice balance. <laughs> if, if, if we could turn the facial expressions I'm making at Tyler into audio. If we'd have a, to cut it out. <laughs> what a feeling we would have. Um, so the chapter ends and we get to 28 footprints in the air a group of three well-written main characters arrive in Whitebridge and their names are Nenev, Moraine, and Lan Nenev continues to be very soon soon and she gives a recap of what has happened since they met up on the side of the river the long and short of it is that uh, Moraine is taking them all to Tarvalon. Nenev is like absolutely in love with Lan and just like wishes she could get away with knifing Moraine while she's asleep. <laughs> but the only thing Nenev wants more is to learn how to use the one power and then use that to knife Moraine while she's asleep. There are no words to express how much Moraine just absolutely... Or, I'm sorry, how much Nenev just hates Moraine and loves Lan. Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of the sound that Nenev would make. That's kind of all there is to the first part of this chapter. It's just reiterated how much that Mar- Moraine values the boys. It's kind of just reiterated. Yeah. Um. So they get to the town, Nenev marvels at the bridge, and... They notice that the town has had a series of fires, like some random buildings are burned. It was just in the past day. Nobody wants to talk about it. Domon and the Sea Spray are gone. No one wants to talk about the Murdral or Tom or the boys. Moraine says that she is sure that the boys were there. Their footprints are in the air. Wow. With strong emotions. She elects to go after Perrin first, because she can definitely get to him, and she has an idea of where he is. Also, his bad dream had a death in it, so... 
right? You tell me. I'm 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 pretty sure in the bad dream that Perrin has in the previous chapter, one of the either a companion or a wolf dies. So versus the boy, the other two boys have been having real bad dreams, but nobody's died in them yet. Well, Moraine wouldn't know that, but yes, yeah. The fact that Moraine is like, well, Perrin still has his coin. We're gonna go after him, and Nave is like, well, but wait, there's two together somewhere else, and Moraine's like, yeah. No. We're going to find parent first. I mean, it turns out to all be okay. That's the chapter. That's kind of the chapter. Not a lot happens in it. The knave ends the chapter being a sulky teen and hating that she's a sulky teen. Sounds like the knave. Chapter 29. Eyes without pity. This is a weird one for Perrin. Yeah. Perrin, Egwene, and Elias make their way towards Camelin at a very quick pace, um, with Elias being extra careful to cover their tracks. Perrin and Egwene are like, this is unnecessary. Why are we spending so much time making sure that nobody is going to know where we are? And Elias is like scouting ahead on top of each hill and ridge. And Perrin's at one point like, let me come with you. And then Perrin sees a flock of ravens scouting for them. The uh, big, scary, dark birds don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Start swirling your sling, Perrin. Uh, the trio uh, runs into the next piece of cover from the ravens. And then we get a scene of the ravens just like murdering huh, a fox. Like, pretty horrifically. That puts some ideas in Perrin's head. Yeah. Foxes are wolf-adjacent. Also, ravens are scary. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the main one. Yeah. Be wary of ravens. And I know it's a murder of crows, but it's actually a murder of ravens, because they are different quarters. Oh, I don't know. Aren't they crows? No, ravens are distinctly different from crows. Just No, like... I mean, in the book, isn't it crows? Oh god, I don't know. I wrote down ravens. I'm sure Bion has it pulled out. Maybe? Ravens. It's ravens. Oh, uh, okay. Never mind then. So during this escape, uh, for the first time, Perrin admits out loud that he can sense and communicate with the wolves. Which I think is nice, a bit of acknowledgement. And then he wonders internally whether he has the stomach to mercy kill Egwene instead of letting her get ripped apart by the ravens. Yeah, this is a weird one. Tough stuff from my guy Perrin. Because I guess it's supposed to sort of contrast. Well, not contrast, but he spends a lot of time with the traveling folk arguing about the way of the leaf. And later on in the series, he'll also still have feelings about the way of the leaf. So he sort of has some struggles with his level of internal violence. And I guess this is just sort of laying the groundwork for that. Yeah, well, later on, Elias implies that, like, eventually Perrin will enjoy using the axe. Or that it would have been the right decision to mercy kill Egwene. Yeah. Well, I was referencing the, like, internal level of violence. That, like, at some Mm -hmm. point, Perrin will become someone who would enjoy using the axe to kill someone. Because, like, every single time he looks at the axe, he's like, 
sickened. Mm-hmm. Is the axe special? Like the hair and katana is special? No, it's just an axe. Okay. Just a wicked axe. It's wicked. So <laughs> wicked. I think it just makes him sick because it symbolizes his capacity for violence. Okay. Yeah. And he's a big, strong boy that wants to be gentle and soft. Gentle giant. Yes. Well, hey, we're going to hear about some gentle giants later on in this book. So they are running from these ravens, and then just before they get caught, they enter this space that I don't remember. What do they... What does it say that they experience? Because, like, I know what other people experience when they go in. It cuts them off from the power, right? Yeah, but they don't have the power. Okay. Egwene says, I feel as if I lost something. Hmm. Also, Elias probably should have explained this instead of saying, no time to explain. (laughs) (laughs) They are in a steading, which is a... the home of the fabled Ogier people. There are certain rules about what kind of things can and cannot enter, and what you can and cannot do, um, like Shadow Spawn and their servants can't enter, and uh, you can't use the one power here. Yeah, he says something about how Aes Sedai will sort of shrivel up and die if they stay in a steading for too long. Yeah. I don't know if he's misunderstanding or not, but... Yeah, I mean, Elias seems pretty experienced. I bet he would know. But he might just be trying to scare them. Does channeling tie into the soul and living? Um, I mean, when we get to a channeler's point of view, you will hear more about that. About like their connection between channeling and being alive. Okay. If you don't channel, you wouldn't like... They won't like literally physically die if they don't channel. No. Okay. So then Egwene suggests, why don't we just stay here until it's all over? And then Elias is like, how long will that be? Yeah. Forever. Around 14 bucks. Yeah. Just, it's only like two years. Like in world time? The yeah, I think so. Is two years? I think so. Uh, huh. Yeah. And that's pretty aggressive because the second, is it the second or the third book? It's the third. Just has like... It's already a year. Yeah. Well, like the second and third books both just skip entire months. And so the remaining several upon several books for a very short amount of time. Yeah. Those books at least can't be more than a year and a half. Things start moving pretty quick. Like in world, not in pages. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not in pages. (laughs) Clearly. Okay, so Perrin goes off and has a brooding guilt moment about the thought of having to mercy kill Egwene. That's the start of the next chapter. Is it? Yeah. Oh, I have it marked here. Okay, um, so Elias gives them a history lesson about a guy named Arthur Hawking. Uh, He was a uniter, a conqueror, and a hater of Ace Sedai. Some say he even sent his armies across the ocean to conquer new lands. It's all ancient history, and all that's left is this piece of an old statue. He united the world. What a guy. Arthur seems like a uh, significant name. Please, Arthur. 
Arthur Paindrag? Hmm. Hmm. Really makes you thinking. It's a big thing right there. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of talk in the series about Arthur Hawking and his empire. I kind of like the image that Elias talked about how saying a kid could walk from the blight to the sea with a bag of gold and be fine, but... Yeah, because, like, it's great and all that as long as you follow the law. So that's where that chapter ends, and we reach our final one, 30, Children of Shadow. Haha, <laughs> get it? To contrast, Children of Light. Yeah. So this is where there's the talk about the mercy killing of Egwene. And the use of parents' axe. And I've pulled out this quote. You'll use it, boy. And as long as you hate using it, you will use it more wisely than most men would. Wait. If ever you don't hate it any longer, then will be the time to throw it as far as you can and run the other way. Which is wise advice. But then Perrin also has a similarly acute thought, thinking easy for him to say to wait what if i wait and then can't throw it away yeah perrin's arc is pretty good the arc of the throwing of the axe i mean that's a joke throw away his shot yeah uh when you think about it robert jordan ripped off hamilton (laughs) um so perrin and elias are like hey, there's something going down. They send for the wolves, and they head back to camp where Egwene is. They grab all their stuff. Um, Perrin and Egwene go one way. Elias is like, I'm going to go with the wolves and run interference. You need to hide. Perrin and Egwene find, like, the world's worst hiding place. (laughs) (laughs) It's just hard to hide when you're with that unit, Bella. Yeah. The nine-foot-tall stallion Bella. Should have sent Bella to kill the Dark One. Yeah, so they... I think the place that they're hiding is, like, nobody can see us as long as they don't approach from any of three directions. Uh, So they are about to be found by the... I'm sorry, they are found. People are like, Hey, is that a nine-foot-tall horse? And they're like, whoever's the owner of this horse, please come out. You better walk in the light. Yeah. Y'all best walk in the light on this dark night. And Perrin's like, what do I do? Is this the time to mercy kill Egwene? And then Hopper pops out and kills a white cloak. And then gets just like destroyed by the rest of them. Oh no, Hopper. Oh no, not Hopper. Perrin just, like, loses his mind. Uh, he, everything goes red, and he charges at the white cloaks, and the next thing he knows, he is hit in the head and is unconscious. He wakes up bound in a tent with Egwene, and they're watched over by this super old dude who's just, like, a skeleton. And then... A different, a younger man who is even more skeletal than the first one shows up. The old guy is Lord Captain Bornhold, and the younger man is Child Biar. Byer? Thoughts? 
are we going for like uh i don't know norwegianish use of why or br br yeah are we gonna go for which one sounds dumber because i hate this guy <laughs> br probably sounds dumber okay fire br br maybe he's from Ilian. he sucks he is just like give me an excuse i would love nothing more than to torture you to death yeah let me tear out your fingernails <laughs> burn the witch um are white cloaks kind of night templar take tv trope style yeah 100% yeah where they're like i am good and this is good and you are bad yeah but like the meme version the where meme they version. just like scream deus volt and kill people <laughs> okay yeah okay yeah, yeah it's that i i was getting that sort of thing yeah Great. there's a couple people like lord captain bornhold who i hope we stick with him for a while uh he seems like a pretty smart guy I bet he could be a good influence on the rest of the children. Um, he seems to, like, have a brain, but it we usually interact with more people like BR, who is just... Essentially full. just on a power trip. Yeah. Lawful justifications. Yeah. Disgusting. Um, the two of them talk. I don't know why I wrote two. It's a conversation between all four of them. Perrin continues to defend the wolves and is, like, baring his teeth and growling. I speak for the wolves. Yeah. Is Perrin the Lorax? The Lorax? Oh my god. It was right in front of our faces this whole time. Illuminati. Perrin tries to come up with a story to keep them from being executed, because Bornhold is like... Tell me why you're here. And Egwene tries to join in and be like, yes, and. But Bornhold is like, sorry, you didn't fill in all the holes, which means that you're lying. So hopefully you figure it out so we can just execute you instead of having to torture you to death. Take some improv classes. Yeah. Bornhold's like, sorry, Egwene, I heard you say no. Take an improv class on the way to being executed. <laughs> um. He does actually tell Egwene, hey, if you repent and say that you'll walk in the light, you can go free. But Perrin, uh, you killed two white cloaks in your fury, and so you have to die. Use a dark friend. Use a dark friend. You're, we're taking you to Amador to be executed. Do white cloaks actually have the power of the light behind them, or are they just a really corrupt church? Do the Knights Templar have the power of God behind them? Well, no, but they thought they did. Really makes you thinking, doesn't it? Well, anytime you're going to ask a question about the Children of the Light, first ask it in your own head, but replace it with Knights Templar, and that's probably the correct answer. Okay. I, I was just honestly wondering if, if there was a time when they were legit, and then just over time, throughout the many times and ages that they have become progressively more corrupt. Uh, we actually do, in book four, get like a little bit of the book that started it all, and it is like almost Jordan Peterson-esque. Jesse, I don't know if you've gotten there yet. Not yet. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so yeah, white cloaks are no fun. That's about the chapter. 
Yeah, and that's about the section, is just people getting closer to a place where plot can happen. So when I was reading these chapters the first time through, I had the impression that these characters weren't going to come together again for like five books or something. Yeah, because they're so distinct and each one is their own geographical thing and their own various mental stresses that they're processing it's like well of course they're gonna have a really messy journey it'll take a while but but i almost thought it was just gonna be a tease like uh, they'll be in the same town at the same time but they won't even know for like six books kind they'll of thing. just miss each other because a trollic or a marital happened because the pattern said so the pattern would do the opposite. The pattern would, like, weave them into walking into each other. The pattern is all about those meet-cutes. So, I mean, from the beginning of the section to the end of the section, Nanave, Lan, and Moraine have had no narrative change. They're in the same situation they were at the beginning. Matt and Rand, their only change is that they're not with Tom anymore, pretty much. And, and Matt's just getting worse. Yeah. yeah. And Perrin and Egwene... They've had a pretty dramatic change in these sections. Well, like, Perrin undergoes a character change, but, like, they're not with Elias. I like to think of pacing in terms of the amount of times the plot changes directions. So, even though things happen to, like, Matt and Rand in these chapters, their goal doesn't change at all so it doesn't feel like anything happened to them. In a concrete outline, you wouldn't need a 10,000 bullet points for them. You can just be like, yep, that happened, and then move on to the next section. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, it's a pretty tough section. Um, the good news is that the next one has, like, actual changes. Play for your supper. Yeah, uh, spoilers, chapter 31 is called Play for Your Supper. Play for me. So we have like one more segment of like sloggy stuff, but slightly more fun than this sloggy stuff. And then and then we have like the climax of the book. Yeah, like the end of this next section, they're like in Camelot. Things are happening. Spoilers. Which is totally not Camelot. It's really not. Okay. I understand that it's... The book is leading you to continually assume that things that sound the same are the same. Okay. But they're not always. Not this time. Okay. Alright. This has been a podcast. Yeah. We finally reached the end of this segment. And therefore the end of this discussion. Congratulations, listener. You made it. Yeah. Um, next week... It'll be chapters 31 to 40. And so now we have a Twitter. I'll link it in the episode description. We're also up on iTunes. So if you feel like leaving any feedback on either of those platforms, it would be greatly appreciated. We like hearing what people think. Yeah. Please give us validation. It was subtext, okay? Yeah. It was the implication. You don't always have to spell it out. See, it's like that time that... Never mind. Never mind. Anyways, I'm Bion. I'm Tyler. And I'm Jesse. And we'll see you next time. 
Thanks, everyone. Thank you. 